Many of us in the room are very familiar with war and war heroes. I was born in the early 80s, and so my grandfather uh, was a World War II veteran. He was uh, in the 101st Airborne. He paratrooped in uh, the night before D-Day. My uncle uh, was in Vietnam, a Vietnam veteran. My brother um, was in the Gulf War. My uh, siblings and some, I mean, some of my best friends, uh, guys who aren't my siblings, but like my blood brothers, were early on in the war on terror. And so, in my life, I have paid attention to war and to war heroes. I've watched uh, quite a few uh, Medal of Honor or Medal of Valor kind of recipient speeches. And in those speeches, there's one thing that I've noticed. As, as this war hero is, is held up and he's presented there this Medal of Honor, he receives it in an unworthy manner. He doesn't consider himself a hero. He doesn't look at himself and think, I, I deserve this. He receives that medal in an unworthy way and with a little bit of guilt. Possibly a lot of guilt. Guilt because he realizes there's a number of his brothers, number of, of his brothers in arms who very well could have gotten that reward. He also has the weight that he has, he has men that he fought with that did not come home. And so when you hear them, when you hear them speak, when you hear their, their speeches, almost every time they communicate how unworthy they are. As we open up God's words today and we begin to take apart Luke chapter 17, here is the big truth that I want you to know. That Christians are unworthy servants that are loved by a worthy master. As Christians, we, we often feel unworthy. When, when, when we come to God's word and we open up God's word and we read God's word or we hear the preaching of God's word or we, we sing a lyrically uh, rich worship song, so often it can make us feel un unworthy. Just as you hear uh, the, the one with the Medal of Honor recipient who's been given this gift and this honor, he doesn't think that he that deserves it, so really should the, the Christian feel that way, right? This unworthiness. But what makes us feel unworthy? It's our sin. It's our sin, isn't it? It's, it's our inability to rightly keep the commands of God. We live in a fallen world, a, a broken world, a, a world that is marred by sin, right? It's from the beginning of time back to the garden of Adam and Eve when the world fell. And so in our fallen world, our broken world, we constantly have to deal with sin. But by faith in Jesus, we can deal with it rightly. Now, this passage that we're going to go through today, Jesus teaches a master class on how to deal with sin. And so, here's what I want us to walk away with. The big truth, Christians are unworthy servants that are loved by a worthy master. I want you to remember that. But this is what I want you to know. 
It is our duty to avoid sin, rebuke sin, repent of sin, don't cause other people to sin, and forgive people when they do sin against us. So, if you will, take your Bibles and go to the book of Luke, chapter 17. We're going to be continuing going uh, verse by verse, passage by passage through uh, the book of Luke. Today we'll cover verses 1 through 10. And so, um, I believe that in, in this there very well could be a break in the story where he's just told this story to the rich man and Lazarus. He's approached the Pharisees, but no doubt uh, the context is same and the audience is very much the same as disciples are there. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keep, keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he uh, thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Now, when we first read this, it's like, man, this is all over the place. This almost seems like four different things that Luke is communicating here, like four different stories, right? He, he starts off, and he's, and he's talking ab about sin and a millstone being hung around your neck, and that's something we see in Scripture, so you've got to like, deal with the millstone. And then we've got to deal with forgiveness, and you, you hear like if he for, you know, forgives and asks seven times, and, and in our head we go, well, seven times 70 from the other, other teaching there in Matthew. And then we hear, if you have faith like the grain of mustard seed, so we've all heard about how small a mustard seed is and, and what, what that means to have faith like a mustard seed, and then you've got this parable at the end about a servant. So it seems like there's four things here. But the reality is it's one, and it's a master class on sin. And so he says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. I want you to put your eyes on that text and look at this. Temptations to sin are sure to come. Here's my first big idea. In a fallen world, we constantly have to deal with sin. But by faith in Jesus, we can deal with it rightly. There's a right way to deal with sin. And, and we live in a broken world, and there is sin all 
around us. I want you to understand as we approach this text that there is a level of mutual brokenness that we all have in common. How many people do you have in your house? Five, two, three, that, whatever number you just said, that's the number of sinners that you have in your house. Who has children? Are they sinners? Somebody raise their hand real tall. Yeah, they're little wretches, right? Who's got a husband? Husbands, I'm not asking you. I'm keeping you out of the doghouse. You're welcome. Uh, you can pay me later, right? Um, yeah, we live, like our, our homes are enough that we, we see in our homes this like level of mutual brokenness. Who, who have coworkers? Who, have, who has siblings? Who, who has parents, right? There, there's a level of mutual brokenness. We live in a world where we constantly have to deal with sin. We have to deal with our sin. We have to deal with other sin. And so they're sure to come. Sin is a reality in a fallen and broken world. So, here's the warning. But woe to the one through whom they come. And he says this thing. If it would be better if a millstone were hung around the neck and he were cast in the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones. And this, this, this language is used three times in Scripture. Uh, you get this idea of these little ones, these people new to the faith, young people, uh, yeah, I think, it, I, I think it would mean like more, more new than necessarily young, but definitely you get this image with children where he, in one story he pulls up children and says, don't make them stumble. And so here's the second big idea, is that we must be careful that we don't lead others into sin. When I was a uh, teenage boy, I was the definition of latchkey kid. And so me and my two buddies, we ran around all summer long with, like, total freedom. Uh, I mean, it was literally as, you know, as long as we got home before it was time to go to bed, it was good. And we had bikes, and we were in shape, and we literally covered tons of the countryside. We grew up about two miles uh, from a really big lake. And, man, so much of our summer revolved around that, that, that lake rope swings and fishing and jumping off of bridges and doing all, all sorts of stuff. And here's the reality. So much of the stuff that we did was stupid. We would swim out to the buoy and we would get on the buoy and ride it like a bull. And, and, and a couple times the sheriff would come and he would see us out there on or the game board and they would fuss at us and we would just swim across the, the other, like the channel because we knew we couldn't do anything about it, right? We were just, and it was just stupid. Well, it was just one of the really stupid things that we did. We would go to the boat ramp, and, and beside the boat ramp, you know, it's like a, it's a paved boat ramp, but on the sides, there were river rocks, these big boulders that would keep people when they're backing their boats in, which is just funny, watching people back their boats in, uh, keep them from going like off and getting stuck in the mud. And so we would go pick up these river rocks, and we would hold them in our arms, and we would walk down the boat ramp, and we could see who would get out the furthest. And then when we just ran out of oxygen, we would drop the rock, and we'd float up. And then we'd do it, and we'd be standing there, you know, float up and, and tread in water and see who made it the, the, the furthest. And by the way, I don't think I ever won, right? I look back on that, and I'm going, that was so stupid. But do you know that it just does not take a very heavy rock to weigh you down underwater? It doesn't. You would be really surprised how far you can go with a 20-pound rock. 
Now, here, this, is the, this is the idea of this millstone. It is a weight that will drown you. It, it, tied around your neck, that weight would drown you. The millstone uh, was used uh, to, to grind grain. And it's used for actually, like, if you look at where it's first talked about to the last place it's talked about in the Bible, it would have changed, right? Because you're talking uh, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, but in the New Testament times, more than likely it was on a wheel, had a, a hole in it that was used to, to grind, and that that rock put on, uh, you know, put a chain around somebody's neck, it would make them sink straight to the bottom. And so the, the analogy that he's saying is, it would be better for you to have that thing tied to your neck and thrown in and drowned than it would cause them to stumble. It is better to die than to cause one, someone else to sin. Woe to you. There's a really strong exhortation here that we should not be stumbling blocks for other people. So often, when I'm having a spiritual conversation with somebody, um, and, and maybe, maybe they're reluctant to come to the faith, maybe they're a little nervous around Christians, or maybe they've got some level of church hurt, uh, been hurt by a Christian, they're running, running from it, but there's a stumbling block of faith. So often that stumbling block of faith is that somebody has caused them to sin, caused them to stumble. They have done something within their life and how they've lived it out that it causes other people to question the goodness of God. Now, as a Christian, as somebody who reads the Bible, we quickly realize right, that we're all mutually broken and that we all have a level of sin and there's only one perfect person and his name is Jesus. Right? And so often what happens with people is that they're, they're, they're looking to a, a peer, they're looking to someone and putting them in the place of Jesus when their eyes should be on Jesus. Like, we, we get that. But, but the warning is for us is to not be the stumbling block. I, I'll tell you that in our day, in our world, um, I believe that one of the stumbling blocks that has been put into place is the sexual revolution. Uh, the sexual revolution uh, in our in our society, in our culture, um, has caused so many people, so many Christians to grasp and, and get in, into it, to, to grab it, to want to be it, to then justify and water down what the Bible teaches about sexuality. And, and as they begin to step into it and they indulge in that sin, they decide they like that sin and it leads them down that path and it is a stumbling block. And so I'm saying that the people who are leading the sexual revolution, the people in the, uh, in the church in America who have uh, laid down to it, who have accepted it, who have watered it down, are a stumbling block. If you look at the deconstruction movement that, that is happening uh, in our time, by the way, it almost always has something to do with the sexual revolution. But if you look at our deconstruction movement, it ends up being people who make light of sin. That they take uh, the morals and standard of Scripture and they twist them. We talked about this last. We talked about this uh, two weeks ago. We talked about it. We we saw how the um, Pharisees did this, but we see these people in this deconstruction movement become stumbling blocks. Um, I think of Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris was a uh, author, he authored a, a really dumb named book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. I didn't read it. I don't know anything about it. I just was like, well, that's stupid. Um, 
But in his, in his journey, when he decided to leave the faith, when he decided to be an apostate, and that's what his own words, I'm an apostate, he decided that I'm going to lead people with me. And just as he had figured out how to make money in the Christian religious realm, so he figured out how to make money leading people away from the faith. And I would tell you, like the warning to him, and Joshua Harris knows this, that the Bible teaches it would be better for him to have a millstone tied to his neck and drown. Jen Hatmaker is another that I would look at and go, man, within her emotionalism, within the things that she did, and by the way, so much of that, again, reverts, goes back to uh, sexuality. She's in, in her emotionalism has led people away. And they've, they've followed, and again, profited off of it. It would be better for her to have died before she became that, before she did that. Derek Webb. Derek Webb was a, a musician. He was a part of a band named Caveman's Call. He always was kind of edgy and kind of put songs out that just really kind of pushed, pushed against culture. And there's a lyric from one of his songs, and this would have been I don't, late, late 90s, early 2000s. I'm sure it was early 2000s. And I'm not, still not going to say the lyric of this song. There's a lot of little ears in here last time. There's a few in, in this time. So I'm going to change the lyric. You'll, you, you may remember this lyric. He said, I am a woman of will, ill repute. And he obviously did not say ill repute. I am a woman of ill repute. I put you on just like a wedding dress and I run down the aisle. I run down the aisle. And he, and he painted this picture of, I'm Gomer. Jose, Go, Hosea, uh, uh, Gomer, Gomer was a, a, a woman who, who played the role of the harlot, the prostitute. She cheated on her husband. He kept going back and getting her. He kept going back and getting her. And this lyric was like brilliant and gripping because it's who we are. We are Gomer, right? You, you want to play that game in the Bible. Who am I in the Bible? Well, there's a good one. You're Gomer. And so he, he acknowledged this, and then what he continued to do was play the role, to run, to run, to run away. And when he decided to deconstruct, he took people with him. Just this year, he shows up at a Christian music industry award show in a white dress. As he's fully embraced the sexual revolution, I, I'm not 100% sure uh, if he's living as a woman, this is what I know. There was this young man uh, in my student ministry. Uh, when I first became a, I think it was actually just an intern, he was a senior. And I had his siblings, I knew his parents well. Uh, but I, I invested in this man, thought very highly of this young man. Uh, he became a worship leader. And we actually sent him out from our church to go be in a, um, um, a worship leader at a different church plant. He eventually became an elder. Uh, he served at multiple churches at the elder level and at, at a, as, a, as a worship leader. But right around the time that, that Derek Webb, his, his favorite artist, his favorite musician, deconstructs, so do we get the word that, hey, this guy, this young man, is deconstructing. And here is the crazy thing. He tries to look like Derek Webb. He tries to dress like Derek Webb. And now... He's married with kids and living as a woman. We must be careful that we don't lead others into sin.
that we don't excuse sin. It comes with a grave warning. You would rather die than lead others to sin. I would give a warning to dating couples. Men lead out as you date. Don't lead your spouse into sin. Couples, put those right things into place. I would put out a warning to parents. Parents, don't lead your children to sin. Put the right guardrails up. Don't turn them loose with devices that have the whole access to the whole world at the click of a, a, a button without putting the right guardrails and restraints on it. How do we do it? How do we keep people to leading from people from sin? Listen to verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And, it's, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Here's the next big idea. Is that we must keep a close watch on ourselves. He says, pay attention to yourselves. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul the apostle writing to Timothy, this young pastor in training. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Isn't that interesting? Like he's saying, like, pay attention to yourself. You're going you're gonna to keep them from sinning. You're going to keep from being the stumbling block. Pay attention to your life and your doctrine. How do we keep others? By first keeping a close watch on ourselves. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn, turn over to Matthew chapter 18. I, I don't have this up on the screen, but there's two, two spots in, in Matthew that I'm going to talk about real quick. Matthew 18 verse 7. I, I, I believe, I, I don't necessarily believe, I think, you know, we've talked about this before in teaching through the book of Luke. There are things in the book of Luke that, it's not that their accounts are, are different, that they remembered how it went different, that Jesus probably taught the same sermon multiple times, used the same examples multiple times. I'm, I'm sure Jesus said the saying, it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck more than three times. I'm sure as he preached sermons, he said that over and over and over, just as you could go, yeah, you say that, you say that over and over, and as you preach, Jesus did too. And so I believe this is probably a different, different time of teaching, and Jesus uses some of the, the same language. He says in, in verse 7, Woe to the world for, for, for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And listen to what he says to do. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter the life crippled or lame then with two hands or two feet or be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And so there's this, this warning. Uh, he's using this literary feature there. He's not saying uh, to, to literally do it. He's using these figures of speech. What causes you to sin? Take drastic measures so that you don't do it. Take drastic measures to keep yourself from sinning, to watch yourself. 
Here's the next big idea. We must keep a watch on others. Now, wait a second. That's the, that's the like, craziest thing you can say in America. Keep a watch on others? You can't judge me. Like, that's America's favorite Bible verse. You can't judge me. We love that one, right? I get to do what I get to do, and you can't say anything about it. This is my expressive uh, individualism that, that we have as Americans. You, you don't get to say, keep a watch on others. But he says this, pay attention to yourselves. If a brother sins, rebuke him. Mentioned, I think, last week that uh, it, just in some discipleship stuff at home, we've been going through the Proverbs with our, with our sons. Monday was the, I believe it was Monday, was the 27th. And going through Proverbs 27, man, it is rich. It is a, it is a banger of a proverb. I mean, it's just like boom, boom, boom. It, they are good. And early on, it says, better an open rebuke than hidden love. And we stopped right there and explained to our boys, like, it is better that somebody rebuke you, that to, to call you out than, than to have this hidden love for you. That rebuke is a good thing. Being called out on sin is a, a good thing. You know, Jesus said, like, you should look at the log in your own eye before you point out the speck in somebody else's eye, Right? There's a hundred percent here in Scripture where we see that, no, you should watch your life first. You shouldn't be going around the person like, you're not the Pharisee that goes around going, you've got sin and you've got sin and you've got sin, but I'm holy, right? That's not what we're, we're to do. We're to see our level of brokenness, our sinfulness, but in love, we're to rebuke people who have sin. Imagine that you leave here and you're driving home, and you see that there is a child out in the street. A little child, like barely can walk out in the street. And imagine you just drove by, and then that child later got hit. How would you feel? What would be the loving thing to do? To stop, get the child, warn the parent, figure out how it happened. By the way, you're going, that doesn't sound realistic. This is a real example. This happened to me right in my neighborhood. I had to hurt, hurdle the kid. Like, I didn't want to touch the kid because I didn't want anybody to think I was stealing the kid. But the kid was in the street, and I was like, go that way. It was like, like shooing a cat, you know? And I was like, and then it was like calling the mom's name. I knew the family. I was like, hey, they're outside. And they come out. They're all embarrassed, you know? They're like, oh, so she's just into everything right now. I'm like, hey, I get it. No judgment. But I love your kid. I don't want him to die. Why do I discipline my kids? Why do I, I, I punish my kids when they're doing something that will hurt them? Because I love them. Right? Because I care for them. We rebuke because we love. We have to correct because we love. And so, just as it is evil to cause somebody to stumble, so is it evil to let them go in their sin. To let them go their merry way. I know that we fear that, hey, if we rebuke you, if we call you out on this, if we mention this, it's not going to go well. We fear that you maybe would reject, you may reject me if I call you out on it. And so we tolerate it. So we don't do the loving thing. We keep our mouth shut. 
later on in Matthew there, after the parable of the lost sheep and what it would mean to bring the street, the, the, a stray sheep back, to bring the sheep that's going to get attacked from the wolves back into the fold. He says, if your, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven again. I say to you, if two agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so that verse, we thought like we could just use about anything. It's about church discipline, okay? And it's about agreeing and praying together that someone would repent, that one of the, the sheep would be brought back into the flock. It, it, it's about the restoration of people. I have been a part of uh, church discipline, which that's what's described there in Matthew chapter 18, many times in my years of ministry. Uh, a lot of churches don't do church discipline, but man, I, I believe in church discipline. I believe that, it, it, that that correction, that loving rebuke is what you need. And more times than not, the, the discipline has worked when the first person went and said, hey, I see this. This is dangerous. Warning, warning, warning. Come back. Other times it's taken two or three people going to them and saying, This is a danger here. There's warning, brother. Come back. A few times in my life, I've been a part where the church, we had to bring them because of the public nature of the sin, because of the, the things that happened. We had to bring the person before the whole church for the whole church to say, Repent, brother. We love you. Come back. And man, I've seen lives restored, marriages restored. One, one man who had stolen from his company, had, had a, uh, the, the mafia after him, not making this up, like the mafia coming after him, be brought in before our church and, and discipline his marriage, save his, uh, uh, in, he ended up being pardoned by the governor years later. Like you see this level of restoration that happened. There's other times in my life where I've gone to the person. And I, can, I can think of, I can think of the, the very first time I had to do it. The very first time I had to do what I would say is biblical church discipline. The person said, I want nothing to do with it. I'm leaving the church. I don't care if you take my name off the roll. I don't care what you do. I'm leaving and I'm going after this thing because you're wrong. And I will tell you that their life is an absolute disaster today. It would have been unloving for me to let them go without trying to be in their way, about trying to be the roadblock. So we must keep our eyes out for others. And then he says, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And so here's the next big idea, is that we must forgive as we have been forgiven. Science and scientists are forever 
trying to catch up with theology and theologians. This is what's true. That so often you're going to see in the scientists, the psychologists, the sociologists, whoever it is, they're, they're going to be uncovering truths, and they're going to bring these truths to light, and you're going to be like, yeah, the Bible said that 2,000 years ago. <laughs> if you go home today, don't do it right now, but if you go home today and you just Google, should I forgive someone? Do you know what's going to pop up? It ain't the Bible, right? You might think it's, oh, it's a Desiring God article or it's the Gospel Coalition or whatever. No, those are actually farther down. No, it's going to be the Mayo Clinic. It's going to be Harvard Health. It's going to be uh, an article by a major uh, research hospital. And this is what it's going to say. This is, this is straight from the Mayo Clinic's website on forgiveness. You're going to have healthier relationships. You're going to have improved mental health, less anxiety, stress and hostility, fewer symptoms of depression, lower blood pressure. Lower blood pressure? A stronger immune system. Improved heart health. Improved self-esteem. That's what the Mayo Clinic says. You want motive to forgive? There's their motive. We must forgive as we have been forgiven. Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Forgive, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There's this beautiful thing within Christianity. That, that we should be forgiving people because we are forgiven people. Like we understand a level of mutual brokenness, a level that we are, are sinners and that we're forgiven by a Savior who never sinned. We have a glorious Savior who lived a perfect and spotless life. It was He who knew no sin took on our sin, took on our punishment. The debt that we owed, He paid. And because we're forgiven people, because he's forgiven us, he's seen the things that we've done, and he's granted us forgiveness in Christ, that God looks on us and he sees his son Jesus. He sees that he, he is the one who took on our sin, that we look at others and we, we can realize because of their mutual brokenness that they can have forgiveness too. We're unworthy of God's forgiveness, so we realize that so are they. Therefore, we're able to grant it. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearting, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In our unforgiveness, we have bitterness. We have wrath and anger. It's, it's what comes out of it when we're sinned against. We feel like we, we're justified in it. And the truth is, we, we want to be justified in it. We want to be the one that puts forward the wrath. We want the one who, who gets the revenge. We want karma, as we think about it, so misrepresented in, in our, our, our Western thought. We, we want that to happen, and the truth is that God is the only good one. He is righteous. He is the judge. He is the one who can bring justice. And so what's good for us is to forgive and turn it over to God. To not hold a debt owed. And so when somebody repents, when, when they repent, when they turn, we forgive because we've been forgiven. I sat in a, in a worship service one time and uh, 
I just thought it was a Sunday evening service. A friend had invited me to church, and I, I just thought it was going to be like a normal kind of night. And I get there, and the guy is preaching on forgiveness. And so, like, I hear the text, and it doesn't, I'm like, all right, this is good. You know, I don't think in my time, it didn't, like, occur to me that I had any, like, unforgiveness against anybody. But I was sitting next to a few people. My, one of my best friends, uh, still really close friend, um, we talked we talk quite a bit. When he was in middle school, uh, sixth grade, his dad did some horrible stuff to their, their family, the unthinkable. And here he has a sixth grader, pivotal point in life. Their family has to move. I mean, he, he hates his dad. I mean, there is a level of hate that he has towards his father. The, we're, we're, in, we're in college at that point, uh, trade school together. And, and if you talk about his dad, I mean, he hated him. I'm pretty sure if he could have gotten away with it, he'd have taken his life. I mean, that's the level of hate. Beside him was uh, another girl her father had cheated on her mother the same year that she was born. And so this girl had a sister in her grade, a half-sister in her grade that she didn't know about. But the girl, he, he continued to live this double life, and he continued to have this, these two families, but this one family didn't know about the other one, and the other one did. And so those two girls, it, it, it started coming out. The, the, the one felt like the, you know, like the little, the, the ugly stepsister. The other one was clueless. And then as it came out, there was this war between them. And let me tell you, she hated her father. And so this pastor's preaching this sermon on forgiveness. And they are just both just bawling. And I'm like, what is going on, you know? And so the altar comes, you know, and I'm like praying with them, and they, you can just see. And I, I'm really not 100% sure uh, about her as much as I am my, my good friend, but it, it is like a thousand pound weight was taken off of her shoulders. His shoulders, rather. Like, he, just the relief. And by the way, it's not a perfectly restored relationship, but after that, he went to his father and told him he forgave him. That father has been able to see his grandchildren. He has worked to make some sort of restoration with that father. At the same time, a guy walks up to me who I had sinned against, but unknowingly, years, before, years earlier, he had unforgiveness of his heart towards me. And he, he said, I forgive you. And I look back on that, and I was shocked. I was like, I didn't know you were harboring anything against me, but I was, I was, you know, as they say, living rent-free in his head. And so what did I do? I didn't want to be in that spot. So yeah, I asked for forgiveness, and he forgave me, and, and there was a, a relationship that, that was never really there that began to be like made new out of that. Forgiveness is a good thing. It is good for you. As you have been forgiven in Christ, so you forgive others. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How many times do you do it? Seven times in a day. Seven times 70. Enough. Like This is what you have to know. Is that we are a forgiving people. As we continue to sin and we get forgiveness, so do we continue to forgive. Now, I, I want to put in this caveat to say that that doesn't mean that if it, when, when there was, 
incredible harm done, and there was abuse done. It doesn't mean that we don't put up the, the proper guardrails and we don't set the right boundaries. It doesn't mean that we don't leave the situation. It doesn't mean that we get in a, get in a, a good place, but it does mean that we are turning them over to God. We are, we are saying, we are sinners. I am unworthy. They are unworthy. I am not holding against them. To, here they are, God, to you be the glory. You save them. You bring them in, whatever it is. So we have to live in a place of, of no matter what they've done, we relieve them of a debt owed. I think sometimes you'll, you'll see a mother and a father at a trial. It'll be a trial of somebody who has, maybe because of drunk driving, maybe because of some other thing, they have killed their child. And you, you will see that this parents, in the loss of their child, will go to that trial, will go to that death sentence hearing, whatever it is, and they will forgive them. And you know when the outside world looks at that and sees that, that they have no place for that. They can't quantify that. They can't look because we can because we realize the depth of Christ's forgiveness for us. And so as we say these things, as we, as we kind of think through, keeping a close watch on ourselves, not causing others to sin, looking after others, forgiving others, does that just seem like, oh man, that's the Christian life. That's simple. That's easy. I got it. Anybody just got it, like nailed it? It's incredibly hard, isn't it? Like, if you've really, really been wrong, forgiving somebody is incredibly hard. Running from sin, running from temptation is incredibly hard. The, the correct re, re, uh, rebuking of somebody is hard. Repentance is hard. And so the apostles the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. This is the cry. It's like, God, this is too hard. We can't do this. Increase our faith so that we can. And then he says, if you have the faith like a grain of a mustard seed, so a little tiny seed that's planted and grows into this massive tree, you could say to this mulberry tree, different tree, big root system, be pulled up and be uprooted and planted in this seed and it will obey you. So here's my next big idea. It is by faith that we deal rightly with sin. We can't deal with sin on our own. We do it by faith. We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God working in us and through us. It is the power of the Holy Spirit in the believer that empowers them to deal with sin rightly. It is by, by faith. And so if you are here today and you're like, man, I have been sinned against and I cannot forgive, the prayer that you need to pray today is, Lord, increase my faith. Let me so see who you are and your goodness, and your love, and your forgiveness of me, that my faith is so strong that I can forgive others. Maybe you're dealing with sin, and you can't, you can't shake free of the sin. Ask the Lord to increase your faith. It is by faith you can avoid sin. It's by faith that you can forgive others. It's by faith that you can rebuke. It's by faith that you can repent. Listen, there is a direct correlation between our faith and our ability to forgive someone who has sinned against us. Lord, increase our faith. And so then he tells this parable. Will any of you who has a servant... Plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, 
Come at once and recline at table. No. That's not what's said. Right? For us, we've got to, we've got to put this together. This is, this is um, more like indentured servitude. This isn't think chattel slavery. It's not that, right? This is you've sold yourself into slavery. You're paying a debt. This was normal in that culture. No. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Yes, that's what he'll say. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? No. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. It's hard for us to kind of fathom this because we kind of come, come to it in our world and think, that's, that's not nice of the master. But yet, I heard, I heard you order at McDonald's. You didn't say thank you. You were, you were nose stuck up in there and they probably spit in your food. Um, you were at Chick-fil-A. They said, my pleasure, and you mocked them, right? Uh, we can think of it this way. Think of it like, imagine, imagine every time, you, like whatever you do for a job, every time you do your job, your boss comes and says, thank you, puts his head in his cubicle. You do it again. Thank you. Here, let me do that for you. Here, I, I, know, I know that's like end of the month and you've got to turn in receipts. I'll take care of those receipts for you. Said no boss ever. Right? That's the point he's making. Like, no, it's the job. It's your duty. This is what you do. Big idea. As Christians, it is our duty to deal rightly with sin. The world gets sin wrong. Christians must get it right. We are a light to the world. Us being a light to the world, a light to the dark world, means that we're showing them how we deal rightly with sin. That's the point of the parable. We are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. When we deal rightly with sin, we're only doing what is right with our our within our duty, because we realize who we are. As Christians, it's our duty to deal right with sin. I want to go back to the big truth. Christians are unworthy servants that are loved by a worthy master. We're unworthy because we're sinners. But we're made worthy by Christ. Because God, in His goodness, in his love for us, in his plan to redeem us, in his plan to reconcile us to himself, he sent his perfect son to the earth. God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the advent of Christmas. It's the coming of Christ. God sent his son to dwell among us, and he was born of the Virgin Mary, and he lived this perfect life. He was without sin. He knew no sin. He never sinned. He was totally worthy. And he who knew no sin went to the cross of Calvary. He took our punishment. He took our shame. He took our unworthiness, and he died in our place. The debt that we owed, he paid. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, he's our master, and we believe in our heart that God raised His Son from the dead, that we will be saved, we'll be justified, we'll be made right, we'll be reconciled to God. 
And so, yes, we have to sit here and in in our brokenness and in our sinfulness realize that we are unworthy, but we must then realize by faith that Jesus is worthy. And so we then go and live our life the way he commanded and we obey because Jesus is worthy. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And I pray that we'd live by it, that we wouldn't just read it, but that we would heed it. That your word would be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. That we would hide our word in our our hearts and we would not sin against you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to deal rightly with sin. So first, to keep a watch on ourselves. To be people who are fast to repent. That we wouldn't be people who cause others to stumble. But rather we would be people that in in loving kindness rebuke them, pulling them back into the flock. That you would make us people that that are people of peace, restorative in our very nature. Lord, I pray that you keep us to, uh, keep, give us the power to keep a watch over ourselves. Lord, that we would be able to forgive others. Those in the room who, who are holding a debt, who have been greatly sinned against. Father, will you give them the, the faith to forgive? And Lord, would you be glorified in it in the way that we worship you, in the way that we live our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.